what's happening guys this episode is brought to you by jh video and photography not that do they just do sick sick edits of videos and good quality weddings events pictures edits photo shoots for brands they also do all my cool stuff that I use on my channel and that I use on my Instagram. So you see my Coffee with Sam picture, all the writing, the effects. If I have anything that's really creatively moving or photos that look like they've been um, properly edited and really good wording added to it, not my YouTube thumbnails, they are my own. Um, they are the one-stop shop for everything photography videography text photoshop picture edits texts logos for your business you want to start a brand new company get at jh photography and videography and they will make you a new logo for your brand new brand or company if you want to see a lot of their video work head to jack holmes on youtube the coffee with sam podcast and we have my good good friend back deborah fields roll that intro morning morning deb how are we i'm really good how are you i'm good you've brought the sun today it's been <laughs> it's been a cold couple of days um up here, down here from you, up here in the West Midlands. But I find it really interesting because I, I'm fascinated by, I think Mother Nature's looking after us. We have had the most incredible bout of weather through all of this. Yeah, we, it, I think it hits you harder because we've had such good weather. Then we've had a couple of like sunny days, but cold winds. So you get tricked by it. You head outside with shorts and t-shirt on and then it's freezing cold. Um, well, yeah. that's British weather. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose. It looks like the sun's I I, Yeah, but I, I think we've been really lucky with the weather. And I find, if imagine if we'd have had non-stop rain, all those kids would not be on their air tracks or out in their garden practicing when they can or outside somewhere. And those who don't have the outside, you know, I feel extra sorry for it. It makes such a difference to have a garden and everything. And, and a lot of kids are on their air tracks. Everyone's trying to buy air tracks. I think they sold out for a while. Like, you know, I think, I think Amazon, yeah, even Amazon sold out yeah which i get because you know people want something don't they and i think cheers keeping a lot of kids sane really yeah well we we did the re-landscape the whole garden in that one week when it was really hot um yeah. i think it was like the first week we were told that everyone should stay at home so no one was even trying to creep out to work or trying to do anything extra so the whole family was here and yeah we got the whole garden fully landscaped um it's cool, isn't it? I've done loads of jobs. However, I see a lot of clients every week anyway. Um, I know a lot of therapists see 10, 20, 30. I, I frequently and always have done see more your 40 to 50 and, and I'm running workshops on top of that and I'm getting referrals and recommendations every week or people saying, can you see me? And I've reached that point where it's like, I can't physically work anymore or mentally work any more than I do. So I'm referring to a very good friend now and I'm busier than I ever have been. And on top of that, I'm running four workshops and I'm doing this every so often as well. Like that's an awful lot of time. It's sad to think that the world is that advanced now that when we go 
back in time as such, like to be in just staying at home and spending family time that people then now need your service because they've had things yeah. taken away from them. But, but I think also it's a little more complex than that. I think a, a psychology professor many years ago said to me, in, like in stillness, that there were two aspects to what she was saying. One, she was talking about a model and that was about a pond. And that when everything is stirred up, you get a sort of reflection in the pond. You see yourself, but it, it's, not, it's not particularly easy to see yourself. It's a bit murky and it's not that good because it's busy. But as soon as the pond clears and it becomes still, you get a very good reflection to yourself. But at the same time, you also see it what's on the bottom of the pond. And, and stillness gives cream a chance to rise to the top, but also scum. So when we're still, all of our stuff comes up. And, and when we're stressed, which everybody is stressed, whether you cope with it brilliantly, like you've really landscaped your garden. I've done on top of work and all that time, you know, I'm making sure everything's running. I've gutted my shed. We've built three sets of shelves. I re-put it back together again. We've done this job. We've done that job. We're going to get a skip soon and clear out, you know, the eaves. That's the last bit to do because having cancer last year made me clear out a lot of my house because when we feel under threat, we like to feel like we function, some of us. So we overdo it. We do a lot. Some of us go, oh, God, I can't cope with this. I can't handle it. We go back to our coping mechanisms, whatever they are. And actually, that links us in beautifully to self-harm because self-harm is a coping mechanism. And it doesn't matter how negative, whatever that means. Like that's, I did that in bunny ears for those who are just listening. Whatever negative means. It doesn't matter if your coping mechanism is negative or positive. It is a coping mechanism. That's what it is. It's designed to help you work. So I've even had a few clients from years ago sort of say to me, could you please just fit me in not long term just for a bit really struggling at the moment because all my old stuff is rearing its head yeah it's unprecedented this time so when we're not okay the way we cope the way we handle things rears its head so you get a clear view in the pond not just of you but all the way down to the bottom do you feel like um you're getting this is just my own personal experience this last couple of weeks you think you're getting more coming now because it's it people are now starting to actually think oh, okay this is real we've been stuck in now for two months how much longer is it going to go on because I had a complete breakdown last week um yeah. I was when I was messaging you and I think because my partner works for the NHS so her life hasn't changed apart from panicking a bit more at work she's still going yeah. to work so she's coming back and seeing maybe I haven't done something or what have you been doing today and I had to just say, this isn't out of my choice that I'm at home, that I'm not working. You know I'd like to work. But then I decided to think about things. And it was like, I built my business over the last six years to be sustainable and like get to the point where we were like, yeah, let's go buy a house. And people said, yeah. you couldn't do your my line of work, just cheerleading and fitness. You couldn't do that as a job. And I finally did it. And then someone just got this carpet and pulled it from underneath me. And I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. But then I just broke down and was like, I'm lost. Yeah, I really feel for you. It's rubbish, isn't it? Because it is bringing everything up and it, it isn't lost. I'm going to say some really facetious, terrible stuff that therapists shouldn't say because in your head you'll be going, but it is, but it is, but it is. And then it isn't lost, Sam. You have built up a reputation. It will last. You're doing stuff through. So, and that's what I'm admiring. So, some people and some gyms are actively going out chasing sorting and doing however that's also their coping mechanism because yeah. that's the sort of people that they are and some people are not some people are going oh gosh you know they become more victim like this is all happened to me this isn't fair why me this isn't okay um and other people will think differently and think right what can i offer what can i do 
you know, the fact that I'm doing this, the fact that you're doing this, the fact that I'm running these two workshops for the cheer related, the fact that I'm running two workshops that are related in a completely different sector. You know, Hancock said last night that you will not be able to go out and hug somebody new, right? For maybe until a, a vaccine is found. So that really hit me. So if you think of all the single people that are out there, you think of all the kids who want to have their first kiss or whatever it is at prom, no, you can't get off with somebody else. You can't meet a new partner. You can't have sexual contact. You can't have physical contact. He's, that's what he's, he's not saying that, but he is saying that in so many ways, dating, connection, human beings, even people we love and know, but we saying that some physical contact might be okay. Like if you're already in a gym and whatever, and that starts to happen, but the implications are lifelong for everybody and on their mental health. And we always knew this was going to happen. This has been a physical start. It's a, <laughs> IBS is really similar. It starts with physical symptoms and become a physiological condition afterwards. Um, it starts with psychology, however, primarily ends up with physical symptoms. Sorry, that's the right way around. And then it's a huge implication on people because it ends up as a major illness. And a lot of our stuff that ends, starts with psychology agoraphobia, not wanting to go outside, all sorts of stuff. Misphonia, you can't bear the fact that people make a noise when they eat. You know, it can stop you going on the tube if somebody's munching something or stop you going on a train or whatever. It, all this stuff is really huge and it's impacting everybody. And I feel for you, dramatically feel like it. It's awful. The fear around gyms, the fear around gym owners and business owners right now, it's terrifying. If you don't have, you know, it wouldn't it be good that if we said everyone should have at least three months in the bank of wages, three months isn't going to cut it. This is crazy. Yeah. And they don't, <laughs> and especially when you're a startup, they go back three years. So my best year doesn't really matter because they could bring an average of it. Um, that's, that's a different point. Do you find that, um, obviously with your line of work, this is great to be able to talk about that. The, 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 do people come to you for self-harm and stuff like okay. so that? People come to me for so much, Sam, like so <laughs> much. So I've done a lot of postgraduate courses as well. I believe that every therapist should be trauma trained to a certain extent as well. But so I see couples, I see couples who argue, who aren't getting on. I see couples with sexual issues or, um, you know, infidelity issues, for example. I see families, families who argue, families who you know, have a black sheep who, you know, you get all sorts of family reasons coming in as to what's happening and their kids can be young and their kids can be teenage. You might be doing some parenting skills. You might be doing some communication skills. I see individuals and, and the individual from children to seventies can be anything. And, and you have to be so dexterous. I remember seeing a guy once in his seventies who actually what really needed sorting out was his b12 he was losing his temper and getting angry and i said have you had your b12 tested and he said no and actually when he had his b12 tested you know his intrinsic factor wasn't working anymore it made him a lot calmer and feeling a lot better and then we worked on the rest of his stuff so sometimes physiological presentations take place so you can meet someone with a personality disorder or of some kind so you know something like emotionally unstable personality disorder trauma-based stuff and then you can meet people who've got depression, suicidal thoughts. You can meet people who have eating disorders of all sorts of way, shape and form. Um, although I would argue that they're pretty specialists. You shouldn't go in on them unless you know quite a lot about eating disorders and nutrition and all sorts of stuff. 
Um, you see children, children who are trying to identify themselves, find out who they are, that they're lost and they're having issues with communication, skills around communication, not being understood. They might be being bullied. They might be, you know, they might be developing other. So self-harm can be a comorbid sign of something else sometimes. Somebody with anorexia might also self-harm. Somebody with depression might also self-harm and or kids just self-harm just that takes away from it and actually some people don't call it self-harm it depends how you classify it there are many classifications it's also known as self-injury so th there are many but we can go into that in a minute when you can make loads of kids i mean i think one of the worst ones i've seen and by the way if i talk about clients can i just let you know that i do have their consent i, I very make sure I, <laughs> it's really important to me i don't just talk about people and say oh you know Samantha from up the road at number nine did this. That it's not gossip. I have expressed consent to talk about them as examples. It's called pocket clienting, especially when you're teaching and you're running workshops and sharing. And one of the worst things I, I think I saw was a an eleven year old girl who had over a hundred cuts across her torso and her breasts. Wow. Clearly, I didn't see her breasts, but she reached up and she had a um, a short crop top on. Um, I've seen kids. Uh, one girl I used to see um, drew shaved crop circles onto the insides of her thighs you know like huge to the point that they were bleeding um you you can see people who so i don't know how much you want to get into this now but you know or whether we want to introduce it but you know there's a lot of self-harm out there so have you found <clears throat> do you the teams and athletes you have worked with in the past do you find there is a lot of it yeah in... So on average, in the UK, what they say is it's under 20% of people self-harm. Now, notice I just said the word people because there are some myths around self-harm that we can go into in a minute. But self-harm is quite interesting. We use very different terms, deliberate self-harm, self-injurious behavior, self-mutilation, cutting. Some people call it self-injury, parasuicide. There are so many different phrases that people use, but we're talking about the same thing. The person themselves needs to be happy. So if they, someone says to me, oh, I'm self-injuring, I say, talk to me about your self-injuring. If someone says I'm self-harming, I say, talk to me about your self-harming. It's really important that I respect what they call it and how it is. But it's a huge term. It's a huge term and it means all sorts of things. So it can be food related. You could, you could classify that self-harm, if somebody overeats, undereats, they've got bulimia, anorexia, orthorexia. I was, I was literally, it's too I was much literally just about to say, that's, it's weird, the things that, you think of like, oh, well, are they unhappy? There's a lot of like obese um, or um, anorexia. You start that question off with, talk to me about your life or what's going on. Um, it's quite weird to think that it's not on the same the same line as self-harm, but it can be self-harming because- Anorexia is still the biggest psychological killer of young women in the UK. Suicide is the biggest psychological killer of young men under the age of 30. So anorexia is huge. Goddamn social um, media. Yeah, but not just that. You know, I'll, I'll often say when I see clients at the end of anorexic treatment, which can take years, by the way, um, you know, I'll often say, if you can prove to me it's all about the food or just about social media, I'll give you all your money back. Haven't had one yet, we'll see. This is, that's one area of self-harm. Another one is risk-taking behavior. So people can drive dangerously, um, really inappropriate sexual behavior, which puts them at risk or breaking the law or doing things that, you know, we drive too fast or we do stuff. That can also be described as self-harm. So can drugs and alcohol. So 
if you're if you're a cute long-term alcoholic type thing that could be self-harm you could look at it is that an addiction could it be drugs of some kinds could it even be smoking can we argue that smoking addiction and smoking is a form of self-harm but they're not normally the things that are seen as self-harm the things that seen as self-harm are self-injury so yeah. and they fall into many categories so you've got things along the lines of people bite themselves people cut um, people bang and bruise. So like I knew of one girl who would lift her hair up and lift it up and bang her head against a brick wall so that the damage that was done when she put her hair down wasn't seen. And people scratch, uh, scratch wow. holes, scratch crevices into their bodies. Um, stabbing, people stab with, so protractors, blades, all sorts of stuff and cut. And, and cutting comes in so many forms from scissors to razor blades broken open to scalpels that they buy to... Um, is it protractors? Yeah, the ones that make the circle. Is that the right? Yeah. I can't remember what it's called. And, you know, lots of little tricks. Like, you know, if, you're, if you've got a sharpener, they'll take the blade out and all sorts of stuff. So there's lots of cutting that goes on. So, as I said, the banging and bruising, picking, picking at spots, picking at things, going extra, hair pulling, uh, try echo to treat. I can't remember what the proper word is. We're not talking about the extreme case of that, but sometimes just hair pulling and pulling bits of hair out, pulling out eyelashes, pulling out eyebrow hairs, um, burning themselves, lighters, turn it on, turn it off, put it on, matches, put them out, cigarettes, put them out on their body. Um, all of those are forms of self-harm. So we can ingest stuff as well. So we can look at things that we have, that we, we take things in from extreme examples like bleach or slight over-medication type doses and different things as well. All of those things are forms of self-harm. So before we get into how uh, parents... Oh, and um, hair straighteners and blow dryers, by the way. Hair straighteners are a big one. Okay, so it seems it's how they can hide it. Is that what it is? Like more things like that is the way they can hide it. But before we get into like how an athlete or a parent or um, a coach could spot this, is it, what, what is it psychologically that it seems to be pain? They want to cause themselves pain. Well, yeah. So what we have to look at is gender, race, sexual orientation, religion, everything. Age is irrelevant. People self-harm, self-injure. So we all think it's young children. It's your 11 to whatever. It's not. It's people, people self-harm. Um, there are lots of myths around self-harm that it's mainly... Um, young white girls that's just not true it's just not true but you asked a slightly different question there so why often these kids will have a low self-esteem um intensely negative feelings about how they feel about themselves and they don't get validated by others and that carries on they're perfectionists and high achievers often um comes at such a personal cost to, to push yourself to that level all the time um should have done better not good enough never quite there poor body image weight size when you're in a gym and you compare and that person's got a naturally certain type of physique and you haven't, and you're working out for 12 hours a day to make sure your body looks like theirs. And it is never going to pushing the body self harm can come into that, that poor body image that makes a bit of a difference. If people have trauma or have had some form of abuse, um, it can help them deal with it, whether they're being bullied, lost someone, things are happening, different things that are happening. Sometimes people self-harm in order to help with that and other mental health issues. But the thing to remember about this, um, which people don't, is that, and, and people don't get this, is actually it's about the brain. Um, so you, when 
when people hurt themselves, as I said, it's very common, around 20% of women, 14% of men, one in 11 children in school probably self-harm in some way, shape or form. Um, but if you look up different forms of research, when it comes to sensing physical or emotional pain, our brain, brain uses the same two areas. So you've got the anterior insula, which is like a part of the cerebral cortex behind each ear, and you've got the anterior cingulate cortex, a hook-shaped piece, which is towards the front of the brain. And those two parts of the brain process pain, regardless of whether someone's told you that you're a fat, ugly cow, or a pathetic, useless bloke, or whatever it is, or whether you've hurt yourself. So when we experience pain, we experience pain in such a way in the same places of the brain, whether it's physical or mental or emotional, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what we also know, because there was a really interesting study in 2010 that said when people take paracetamol for emotional pain, it actually helps with the distress. Isn't that crazy? As it reduces the, the, it reduces the busyness of the anterior insula and the anterior cingulate cortex. So it, I'm not saying that people should take paracetamol every time they feel a bit down and it makes a difference. So people who self-harm, what they've done in their brain, what they've learned is that while pain peaks with a self-injury, it also comes down the other side. The pain lessens as it comes down. So if somebody's suffering a form of emotional trauma or pain, what a lot of people will do to combat the emotional distress is self-harm so that the pain will lift and then it will go again. It helps them overcome it and get over it. And it becomes a release from the brain perspective, let, let alone the psychology of it. So it, it makes us feel better. The release is only temporary, unfortunately, and it doesn't last long-term and it doesn't work long-term. So while they'll do it again in that moment is I can't deal with how I feel. There's an emotional wave. It comes up and up and up and it says, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. So we cut it off. But we don't let ourselves learn distress tolerance of I can't do it. It's a bit like giving birth. When women give birth, there's a point in the middle just before they start pushing, um, which is a phase where everything just starts to change over in the body. And often in that time, when we say, can't do this, give me the drugs, can't do it, it's a bit too late. And just as they go through that tiny window, about 20 minutes worth, um, they'll often start pushing and they go, whew, I can do this, it's changed. W emotional waves are like that. We we've, they build up and we're like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. So we cut it off. We never let ourselves get to the top and smash over. We give children things instead, like have an iPad, have something to eat, have something to drink do something else instead of teaching them to tolerate their distress and because they can't tolerate the distress the way the brain works is well i know if i hurt myself number one it looks more real it shows that's one thing this becomes almost a disassociative process of this is something else on me that so if i can do this or do this or do this and hurt myself in any way shape or form then i've got a valid reason to be hurting that's one it also helps me actually feel the pain that I'm feeling and it makes it more real and more apt and more appropriate for us in our brains. Um, but the problem is the ties to emotion of our emotions to physical sensation is real. So in, to hurt ourselves and then to overcome that makes us feel better just in that moment. And then it disappears and we don't feel so good. It's not so great. And then it, that's the way it recurs and recurs and recurs until something's put in place to start to combat that reaction. Correct. Healing. So loads of kids, loads of adults, people, self-harm, self-injure. Now, why? What happens before? A couple of things. 
often the person is hyper stressed. So they go through a couple of areas or might be disassociated with how they're feeling. Something could have happened, something they're not being able to cope with, deal with, can't tolerate that distress. So if they're hyper stressed, they feel overwhelmed, they can't cope, they don't know what to do, that becomes a trigger as such. If they're disassociating, this isn't happening, this isn't real, like la 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 la, I can't deal with this, that la 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 type feeling, then they feel very numb, lost, disconnected, alone, not okay. And to then self-injure, if you're going down the feeling of hyper stress, the feeling you get from that is then you feel relieved. It's a release. You feel like you're in control and you're calm. And if you've gone from the other side where you've disassociated and you feel numb, then you feel something. You feel like you've done something about it. The feeling is real. It becomes alive and you're able to act. It's about control. So instead of like speaking to somebody about the situation, they think because they've harmed themselves or done whatever, it, that's, that's, that's dealt with the situation for, for yeah. that time being. Short release. A little bit like, you know, if you feel a bit low in energy and you decide to have a can of Coke or a chocolate bar, it's not dissimilar. You know, rather than choosing something long-term better for you that has a much longer gain to it, we go for a short, sharp relief. So people who are stressed look for a release, control, a relief and calmness. People who are disassociated and they feel so numb and so not alive by self-harming, they're looking for real feelings and a live feeling. They feel functional and they feel empowered because they were able to act. So they're the two trees that people go down. So taking control of their problems without speaking to people about it. Yeah. Cool. So if I was... Carry on, Deb, sorry. It, yeah, in a way for both, the dissociation or different things. It just, it depends on what's happening. There are so many thousands of reasons why anybody in any way, shape or form would self-harm. And there are so many myths around it as well, like terrible myths, you know, that it's only women, it's only girls, that it's a manipulative behavior. They're trying to get attention seeking, that, you know, they'll grow out of it and it'll change. Teenage white girl, I've already said that one, that it's an addiction. It feels really nice. You've got to be mentally off your rocker, like, or that, you know, only someone who self-injures as well can completely understand. Um, nobody can understand that there is fantastic support for self-harm, that they don't feel pain, that they manage it really well, that they don't care about themselves. That it's an emo thing, you know, like it's a trendy thing. Lots of kids are doing it. Myths, absolute myths, absolute crap. So let's, let's work this in like period, periodically. Let's, let's take this, I'm an athlete. How would you advise that, one, I can notice it, and two, how I should act upon it. Right, so this comes into a couple of areas. Um, first of all, there was a talk the other day um, done by, is it SCUK? Like they did a whole thing about safeguarding and how to protect children. Download it, have a look at it, copy it, make sure you've got a proper safeguarding um, officer, make sure you've got somebody who's like a welfare officer who's in charge of all these things. So if you have a written policy, as a gym or as a human being. So like if you as an individual, if you're going into doing independent coaching, do you then follow the gym safeguarding policy or do you have one of your own? What is your policy? So it's a good idea to have a policy. Even if you're an independent self-employed person, I work with this stuff. I have to have my ethics and morals and I have to adhere to certain things. Um, currently with COSRA, which is the UKCP more than the BACP for, for me at the moment, it depends which body you're, you adhere to. Um, and who you 
are with because there are some rules around this and there aren't so there are two forms of, of procedures that we have to follow one is safeguarding one is beneficence so safeguarding is doing what the, the right thing is according to the government according to the rules according to what people say and what has to be done and beneficence is what's best for this human being right now in front of me wouldn't wouldn't like an athlete so say you've got maybe like an 11 year old athlete who's noticed that her friend's behavior has changed how would like 11 12 13 maybe even older 20 20 or how would they notice if their friend or an athlete on the team has started to has to have this behavior and how should they act well often if you think about the sort of symptoms i said earlier about disassociative like the person isn't as chatty as normal or the person is way chattier than normal trying to avoid certain things talking about other things so you're looking for extremes or changes of behavior you're looking for signs so what would the signs be that the person is a perfectionist perfectionist and definitely comes into it, always pushing you're looking for a change of clothing often somebody like for God's sake, as a coach, if you notice a kid is self-harmed, don't ever tell them to cover it up. Don't tell them to wear long sleeve this or long sleeve that. Go and talk to the kid, but we'll talk about how to do that in a minute. So kids will, for example, be wearing sweatshirts in a gym in the middle of summer with it boiling in the gym all really hot. And you will say something along the lines of, take your sweatshirt off, please. Can you just make sure you got your training, your crop top on and your Nikes, whatever, your shorts? Because actually we need skin contact, don't we, and cheer? We need to be able to hold uniform it's close contact a big sweatshirt a big pair of tracky pants or whatever in the way why why are they changing what they're wearing have they got excessive makeup in places they're excessive makeup when in uniforms are they always wearing something if they always used to wear a crop top why are they wearing a long top every time now what's changed um so like for example a lot of gyms will say for that team to practice you wear this practice kit and for that team to practice you wear that practice kit and a lot of them are crop tops um why is that child all of a sudden wearing the team's t-shirt instead of the team's crop top so we might notice small changes in behavior we might notice that because a lot of kids can become more insular and we're looking for all different things because it depends whether you're looking for self-injury all of those things, it can be like when they put their hair up, there might be a chunk of hair missing. It could be that when you go to plait their hair, that there's something wrong or there's an injury. It could be that the child's behavior has changed in the gym. And we can really notice that sort of stuff. When you have a look around, you know that a kid isn't acting like they normally do. So if I was a 12, 13 year old girl, boy, what would you advise? Like say if it was my friend, would you advise that I approach that person or would I go to the normal roll call of the next senior person onto me. So go speak to my coach or, or would you advise? Really tough, isn't it? Because how does a child deal with a child's problems? They cannot, they can offer to be a friend and say, Hey, are you okay? But actually that child will probably turn around and say, yeah, I'm fine. Thanks. They won't open up particularly. It's hard enough as an adult. If you try and, and talk to a child or find out things that are going on, you know, it has a big emotional effect on you as a human being as well. So that 11 year old could feel guilty, responsible, worried. They take all the blame or they take all the responsibility. It's not healthy to give an 11 year old an opportunity to do that. I don't think so. I think if you're really worried about a friend, go to somebody who you know who will be caring about it. If you go to somebody who's very authoritarian and they're like, right, that's it, I'm phoning social services, I'm on the phone to CAMS, I've got your parents on the line, we're all acting now, and I phone 999, don't worry, they're coming in a minute. Like, oh God, like, yeah, it's not gonna help. Yeah, not healthy doesn't help. That would just make the child close in. So if you know you've got a coach who is pretty good with people, direct, a little bit combative, you know. 
what's going on, talk to me, is really good with the kids, go and tell that person. Go and tell someone, you know, go and tell, I mean, if you've got a team captain who's maybe a bit older, who's pretty good at this sort of stuff, maybe, but again, you might be dealing with an eight-year-old or a 14-year-old and are they ready? Can they handle that? I don't think they can, can they? I don't know many 11-year-olds who can work with this stuff and they're, they're dealing, especially with things at the moment, I think people are dealing with enough. So next line of, next port call is athletes spoken to coach. How would a coach, and there are some young coaches out there, some young people that own full, big, successful programs, how would you advise or what advice could you give to the coaches out there, not just young, but old coaches too, to how to then deal with this process after? Well, you need to decide what your rules are in your gym, first of all. So that's the first thing. What's your safeguarding policy and what are the rules in your gym? So the rules in your gym might differ slightly to a safeguarding policy overall. You might have more or extras or slightly different in that it might be in your gym that self-harm is spoken about. It might be that you talk about it or you have someone come in and do talks about it and that it's shared and it's open and there's no judgment and people can't have a go and people aren't meant to ask and not put the other child on the spot. What we tend to do is, is to go in immediately and try and put the child on the spot. It has a big emotional impact. You know, it's all about blame. Is it something I've done? Is it something you've done? Oh my God. And we bombard them with questions and then we police them. And that actually puts them more at risk because they will find their own space. They will go somewhere else and carry on doing what they're doing. A friend of my youngest daughter's when they were younger self-harmed for a bit and her parents took her door off its hinges and took the bathroom door lock off so they had access at all times um and she just found different ways to do it if anything like people won't like this we need to promote healthy self-harm some therapists will turn and say you can't see me if you self-harm some people will say of course you can see me it's a coping mechanism Others will turn around and say, there are options on how to do this safely. Have you got a kit at home that makes sure you've got all the first aid stuff that you need? Do you have a doctor's number? Do you know who to call if something goes wrong? So each, each individual body will take a slightly different approach as to how they approach this. And CAMS will have a very different approach to maybe a private therapist. Um, or a school will have a very different approach to CAMS or to someone else. And parents will have a very different approach. So as a gym, you must make sure that you have your safeguarding policy and you must follow what you said. So it might be in your safeguarding policy that you phone the local council or you phone the school or you phone CAMS or you report it. Your safeguarding policy might not be about reporting. It might be about making sure you show love and care for the individual, that you help them. It might be that you phone parents or not. So all of these things have to be agreed and we have to follow the law according to them as well. Um, and then you have to have a policy as to how you're going to handle it as a human being. How does it work for you? If you don't, if, if you police the child immediately and put them on the back foot, they'll leave the gym, they'll go. It won't help anyway. They'll run away potentially. They'll burst into tears. That might be a good thing. They might be able to release a lot of this stuff and start to talk to you about it. However, in order for that to happen, you need a gym with an open policy on mental health and talking. Like, so some gyms will really look at the psychology of kids. Some will not. They just ignore it. It just doesn't happen. You know, or what you'll get is you'll get somebody coming and doing a talk that's their talk from their mental health perspective saying, this is what all gyms should do. I also disagree with that. I think 
for me, when I've ever gone into a gym, what matters is what is it that you want from me? What are we trying to do here with your children? I'm not just going to talk about mental blocks. I'm going to talk about your kids' mental blocks. These ones here, the ones that are impacting them. I'm not going to give you an overview on, right, this is everything. So like when I'm at flight school, what I do is I say, this is going to be about mental blocks. Talk to me about your gyms and let's sort out your problems. It's way more effective for those people then, rather than just doing a blanket, here's my talk, here we go. So as a gym, you have to decide what your policy is and what you want to do and how approachable you're going to be. If you are not approachable on other things, if you are not encouraging talking and psychology and openness in your gym and conversations, how can you hold a flyer up? How can you if you've got a problem with them? If you've had an argument, how can you trust your base if you're a flyer and you, you had a problem with them? Or how can you trust that person tumbling to in, engage in talking and to engage in conversation? If you create that openness in your gym, when you come across self-harming, which you will, because if it's one in 11 children and you've got children in your gym, or it's 20% of people, 20% of people. So if you've got a hundred people self-harming in your gym, you have people self-harming. You have to by default. It's just a statistical likelihood. So you have to think about what's the approach I want to take with these people. And is it different with children? Is it different with adults? And can those adults look after themselves? So there are also some very strong policies that you can look up, that you can go to from schools um, and see what you can do as a human being. But if you get into a hostile confrontation, that's not going to help. If a child has wounds that require medical attention, like if they've cut or burnt and it's not getting better and it isn't okay, those children must go to a hospital or a medical professional. That's just a given. And actually some of them shouldn't be doing cheer. If you have injuries on the thighs that could open up or the inside or around the ribs, very popular areas, or the inside of the thigh and someone else's hands go on it and you're holding, like if it's a flyer or a base, if somebody else is going to catch you in some way or hold you or just lift you up and move you along, you can open up injuries. So those injuries must be functional within the gym as well, long-term, otherwise people are going to get hurt. So it's sanitary. Um, it's really hard, but that's, most that's people when, say, That's when it becomes very sticky because they could be using cheer as their safe haven and they're, they're away from something or where they don't think about the problems that are causing them to self-harm. So then you come stuck because you don't want to pull them away from that. But if it's not uh, healthy or sanitary to do so, then you're in a sticky situation. Um, of You know, boundaries are really important, Sam, especially boundaries around someone else's mental health and how they are. If you turn around and say it doesn't matter what a child does in your gym, then you're going to have a very chaotic, unruly gym where children rule the gym and athletes rule the gym and situations are going to occur. If you have a gym where everybody ties into a set of healthy boundaries that are accepted by everybody and they're open and they're shared and they're in your charters, they're in your, whatever you want to call it, the stuff that you put out there, the rules, the regulations, the agreements that you have. If they're clear and they're written, everyone knows. And there has to be a consequence to everybody's behavior for whatever reason, within reason, again. Um, it's about doing something lovingly. It's about doing something caringly. However, having boundaries is loving and caring. I see a boundary not as a circle that's black. I see it as a big red love heart. So for me, a boundary is a big red love heart. I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do for you. And it's the right thing to do for me. And it's the right thing to do for us. It's an act of care. It's an act of love. It's a boundary. Do you believe that... 
that coaches and program owners, do you believe that they have the power to help or it should be pushed straight away to people like yourself? So say the one I, I have never seen a lot of physical self-harm. But especially with what I can notice through notice through doing my job is I've always seen a lot of weight self-harm. We, worlds is coming in two months. Let's dangerously lose weight. Um, I want this world's body. And then it rebounds when we get back into the gym. And obviously, I would always say things. But one, they're my teammates and my friends. And I didn't want to overstep that boundary of I'm telling you what to do. But it wasn't very nice to see it um, as such in the gym. But do you believe that like that type of thing should be pushed to someone like you or a coach could take it upon themselves to help with the situation? Because obviously that's it, world's athletes. That's not even... No, so that depends on age, depends on experience, and it depends on a lot of things. We're very frightened to call other people out. I mean, the British are terrible. We don't talk about sex. We don't talk about death. We don't talk about money. If I turn and say to you, Sam, what did you earn last year? You would go, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, how is that relevant? We don't talk about it. We don't talk about sex. <laughs> yes, it, it's fine. Um, or or <laughs> we fluster at some things and we fluster at mental health because we have a whole stiff upper lip thing going, although that's changing slowly but surely, which is a good thing. Is it a terrible thing to have to say to somebody, look, you're putting on weight, you shouldn't do it. This is terrible. You've lost too much weight. You shouldn't do it. Yeah, no, that's not the way to say anything, is it? So what you just said was interesting in the way that you said it. You notice these things. Should you have to say something? It all depends on the way you say, on the support that you can give. When we take on something as a friend, there are limits as to what we can do. When we take on something as a coach, there are limits to what we can do. GPs have a very limited amount of mental health training. So do social workers. It's just a limited amount. Um, I studied for four years in one area, two years in another, and I've got six or postgraduates. So that's six, and then each of those six is two years, that's 12, that's about 18 to 20 years that I've done consistently all the way through and spent 200 grand on becoming qualified all in when you truly look at it. Like we were talking about this the other day, weren't we on, on, on the old messages, like yeah. it takes a long time, but you've also got some people who've done two years of training and that's it. It also depends on hours of experience. I think coaches and athletes can be really effective with friends and people, depending on the severity of the problem, on the level of the problem, on the repetition of the problem. I think it's a great thing if we turn around and say to somebody, mate, none of my business. I'm really worried about you. And this is why. Look, I'm not telling you to talk to me. I'm not saying you should do something. I'm purely saying I'm noticing and you know where I am if you want to. Don't make the person talk to you. Don't say that they've got to. You know, just say you've noticed. Say that you're worried. Say that you care. And leave an open door and walk away. Don't push. Don't force. Don't try and make it clever. You can go to your GP, limited knowledge. They will refer to CAMS. The problem with CAMS is you've got different people with different trainings in different ways. And CAMS is awesome. The problem with CAMS is the waiting list. Sometimes if a kid is self-harming or things are going on, they won't be seen for anywhere between six to 12 months because they're not dangerous or bad enough. 12 months, six months. Depending on the area. That could escalate from something so small in 12 months to something very dangerous. I mean, 
hey, I can't talk. I can't see anyone at the moment. I've got some friends. I've ref- got one friend I would refer to always. I very rarely refer as well because I don't know what they're like as a therapist and what they're like as a human being. This particular person I've worked with, we've done workshops together. We've done supervisors courses together. We've done a lot of stuff together and I've watched her work and she, I like the way she works and she's effective. She's very straight, especially with teens. And she's got a brilliant book. Her name is Jude Selen Cole. And she has a fantastic book on self-harm and suicidal tendencies in teenagers and young people. It's a great book and you can get it on Amazon. It's small, it's just a small one and it's, it's meant for practitioners. It's a great book. There are also loads of organizations out there that you can go to. There is the NHS to look up. There's selfhelp.org. Um, there's so many more. Mind does it as well. There's lots of people that you can go to for help and advice. And then all say exactly the same thing that I'm saying. It's really traumatizing if you see it as another human being and it is okay for you to say. It's nothing to do with you as such, apart from the fact that you care. So to say, look, I'm really worried about you. I've noticed. So there was somebody that my children are connected to who I've been worried about for a long time on and off. Definitely got a serious eating disorder. And it reached a point where I'm not involved professionally as such. And I'm watching this happening. And my daughter came to me about it, one of them. And I turned around and I intervened. And I said, I want to take you to hospital. This isn't okay anymore. You are seriously worrying me. It doesn't have to be me. It can be anyone. I'm talking professionally and as another human being, would you come in with me? And she did. And in the end, she was sectioned and she's been in care and, you know, she had high levels of self-harm, all sorts of stuff that have happened. But her case was so complex when you look at it that anyone who looked at it would really have to be a professional to deal with everything. But you didn't have to be a professional to say, I care and do something. But do you feel, though, because of your qualifications and your background, that you have more of a right to do that? Whereas just a coach who's a, a qualified cheer coach and they might think, well, I don't have the, the right do you know what I mean? The, the, the right... It's not the right, Sam. It's the guts. I yeah, have the right. experience that it's, we all have a right to say as another human being, we have a right to privacy. We have a right to say that I'm not okay. Let's take C19, for example. You have a right to go out if you want to and go and touch other people and do things. But do you have a right to potentially be infected and infect others? There's an interesting different debating point, isn't there? It's different. You have a right to your privacy. If I see that what you're protecting yourself from is actually damaging and you are going to suffer, I also have a right as a human being to say to you that I care, that I would love you to do something I'm not going to make you. And at some point, there also has to come a point where we turn around and say, this really isn't okay. I need to do something about this. It's a fellow human being. I need to talk to the parents. That can make things worse sometimes because sometimes parents be a court. I was just about that. I was just about to ask that question. Have you ever been combated with parents who either are the cause or don't want to accept the cause? Correct. Both too many times and so many times and parents blame themselves even when they're not the cause. So they then add to the problem because then it becomes about them. Oh my God, my, what have I done wrong? You're self harming. Oh, I'm such a bad parent. Like, um, this kid isn't okay. Why are you making this about you? And I see it in my therapy room as well. I tell them what I've done wrong as a parent. Like I'm such a bad person. Yeah. Can we go back to talking about him, please? Or her, please? Yeah. I'll take it away. The difference is I've got the guts to do it. I, I have the experience. And in my experience, although it might blow up, it will always calm down. And actually it's always better. Not always, 
it's often better. So when we start to talk about things and we start to get things done, I had a situation last night where I'm, I, I'm seeing a girl who had something awful happen to her at school um, with a teacher. It wasn't sexual molestation or anything. It could have become that. It was really inappropriate behavior by a teacher. He got sacked. She had to move schools. She really wants to go back to that school. She's in a new school. And when I spoke to her mum, her mum was saying, oh, the message is really clear. She can't go back. When I spoke to the girl, the girl's saying, no, no, they're telling me I can go back if I find a way and I have a call. I had to bring mum and dad and her into the same space online at the moment and say, right, let's sort this out. Is she going back or isn't she? And the answer in the end was absolutely not. And then mum's saying, yeah, but I was like, no, no, there are no buts. If you keep putting a but in the way, you're confusing her. She's 14 years old. Just be clear. And actually, I spoke to her this morning. She had her normal session. And she's all right. There's a decision been made. And her and I will sort out the fallout from it. And we will. And we do. So as a, as a coach, as, as, a, as a coach, if, if you were, so you, you said you contacted parents and said, I f- I'm feeling something is not going right with your child. Have you seen this behavior, et cetera, et cetera. And they were like, nope, they're fine. There's nothing wrong with them. Where would be the step from there then? Well, you- I'd always start, I would always personally start with the child okay. and then potentially go to the parents. The next step, if the, if the parents aren't listening, depending on safeguarding levels and how bad it is, the next steps will either be the school or social services. However, will social services always do something? I had a child who was punched by her father, full on, full back, somersault after being punched in the face at 15 years old, a backhanded punch, but he he was clenched. Straight across, she did a full back somersault over the sofa, serious bruising. She didn't go into hospital. She came to see me three days later. I had to act on that. We phoned social services, nothing happened. Nothing happened. Um, So that happens sometimes too. you might think you're doing the right thing and sometimes it doesn't take you anywhere. So and is that through, is that because there's so much of it that they have like um, something they have to adhere to, to address yeah. the situation? They're inundated and they have a limited amount of resources and a limited amount of people. So it's finite. It's not infinite. So they, they only have a limited amount. And so often if it's a one-off occurrence or it's a very low level, they won't do much about it. So I do think you can make a huge difference as a coach. If you facilitate a child to talk for a change and to let their feelings out, whatever, however, then you've got to watch that. Because if all of a sudden our child's talking to you for an hour or two a week, do you have the time? What are your boundaries as a coach as well? That's my job. I see people for 15 minutes a week. That's 1% of their waking time in order to get sorted. It is not a lot. However, long time does it work? Yep, there's some really interesting reports on how therapy changes the brain, what it does, and it's the sort of therapist that you have and it's the relationship you have with the therapist that makes the biggest difference. Awesome. That was good. A lot of content. A lot of content. At least we actually spoke about something this week, Deb. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That last one we did was incredible. (laughs) I feel like we both had things to get out and we just got it out. <laughs> but that's real life, isn't it? But that is real life. And I think sometimes, even on a podcast, some of those things are the best things. They Other people relate to that real life stuff rather than purely just content some of the time. So as somebody who provides content in workshops a lot of the time, you think a lot of people just want pure content, but sometimes just to witness two people having a similar conversation to you and going through the same situation in life that you're going through, 
actually gets you more listeners because people go, yeah, yeah, I'm with them. So if anyone watching, anyone watching this or anyone listening on Apple Podcasts now, because we've made it to Woo! Apple Podcasts, um, go you. Deb will give her help where she can. Yeah, um, always. So if anyone's listening or watching this that thinks they've got friends, family, or themselves, want to step out to somebody and speak to somebody that will listen and will not judge, um, then your mind matters, the mental yeah. game, on Facebook. And, and I do judge, by the way. Everybody judges. Let's, not, let's get that one out of the way. There is always a judgment. It's what I do with it that counts. Oof. You judge, you judge me for what I look like. I judge you. We judge every human. Everyone who says that everything is judgment free is lying to you. But the thing is, I was trying to say, it's probably the same with you. What I said about the, you think you can act because you've got the, the right to act. It's the same sort of thing. Like, well, I don't want to talk to my coach because my coach is probably going to judge me. Whereas I would, if I had a deep down problem, I couldn't speak to anybody. I'd go to someone like yourself because I would believe that you'd be thinking, Yes, judgmental, but judgment is like you say, how you can help. Whereas yeah. I'd be thinking a normal person, my mom, my dad, my, 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 my fiance, she'd be judging like, what a weak man. What are this? What are that? Whereas I- And that actually, <laughs> that shows that maybe you should have a few conversations because, do you know, I've been watching normal people. Do and there's a point, we, we do once a, a week. That's what this is. <laughs> but there's a point in it, in normal people, where Connell makes a really a decision based on how he's forecast the future. This, she's going to do this. Marianne's going to do this. So therefore, I'm going to do this. And it changes the trajectory of their relationship. I'm not putting any spoilers in. It's a great series. Don't watch it if you're too young. It's, I love it. It's really about real relationships. Um, but he makes it, what you've done is you've just forecast what you think someone's going to do. I was on... A podcast to Australia last week and this little girl said um so I'm doing some stuff in gyms in Australia for, for whatever reason <laughs> strange so international nowadays um but this was about gymnastics and she was saying well I'm definitely going to lose all my skills and I said to her do me a favor go and get all your pocket money everything you've got she went and got it she put it on the bed and I said give it to mum mum was with her and I said right now you're going to ask mum to go and buy a lottery ticket and you're going to put all of your savings on that lottery ticket and she said well, why would I do that? And I said, because you can tell the future. You can tell it negatively, but it's funny how you won't back it up when it's positive. We all do that. And that's what you just did, that someone would judge you. Of course they'll judge you. It's whether you believe they'll judge you negatively. And that says more about you than the other person. Yeah, I, was trying to, I, I feel that's the way society is, is why we get into these problems these days that someone would come and speak to you because of your position you're in, not someone who's actually like... Guys, if you don't believe it, me and Deb have never met each... Well, we said hello to each other at a, at a conference, and that's about it. Um, yeah. But like the fact that someone would come and speak to you because of the position you're in, not someone who's close to them. Yes. Um, and of course, people open up to me way more because of that. I can be at cheer competitions, and somebody will come over and say, can I just have a quick word? And I've never met them. And all of a sudden, they go, and I go, just, just stop, just stop. That's, that's a little bit too serious for a cheer competition. And actually, if someone's got trauma, I won't let them talk about it for a while anyway in a session. It's not healthy. It re-harms. It, it re-traumatizes. It's a really bad principle. People use talking therapy for trauma. Um, not in that way. It's really bad. It's, it's not a good thing to do, guess speak to someone who's trauma trained so i get grabbed at cheer comps all the time over this sort of stuff like 
I can be sitting there watching something, someone just comes over and I don't even know who they are, or they might know the people that I'm with or something else as well. And yes, of course they find it easier because it isn't their parent. because it's not so much about judgment. It's about shame. We don't want to let people down. We don't want to let people down if they have a certain opinion of us in some way, shape or form. Right. I've got my next client to go to. Great. So coaches, athletes, parents, friends, family, if you notice anything we've spoken about on here that there's signs or anything you would like to speak to Deb about, get at her on her Facebook. If she's too busy, she'll tell you, trust me. She tells me all the time <laughs> to go away. <laughs> so if she's too busy, she, you're not doing too much for her and she will help you when she can help you. Thanks. Nice. And there's plenty of people like me around as well. So thank you. You're, you're doing a great job, Deb. Um, and I hope with these podcasts that we're both helping people as much as we can. And if people want a subject covered, like that impacts them, let us know because we'll cover it. I mean, I'll come up with hundreds of topics. There always are, especially in gyms and stuff. Um, you know, how to handle conflict, how to sort situations out, other mental health issues, eating, how do you tell someone that they're getting unfit or whatever, like all of those really difficult things we can cover that you've probably got a question that we could cover for you as well. Great. So thanks for another good episode, Deb, and I will see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Uh, bye. Thank you guys for tuning in. What another cracking episode on a very, very serious, serious matter of self-harming. And um, like I say, if you want to get, if you, if you can spot anything or you think your friends, your family, your, anybody, then try and um, get out there and help them. And if it, that is stepping out to me, if you feel more comfortable speaking to me, then I will go and speak to Deb um, or go straight to Deb directly yourself. Thanks for tuning in on YouTube and on Apple Podcasts. And I will see you guys in the next episode. Puzzle pieces.